Well, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Joe Glauber, and I'm a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute and acting secretary for the Agricultural Market Information System, or AMOS. For those of you who don't know, AMOS is an, is an interagency platform to enhance food market transparency and policy response for food security. It was launched in 2011 by the G20 Ministers of Agriculture following the global food price hikes in 2007-8 and 2010-11. Bringing together the principal trading countries of agricultural commodities, Amos assesses global food supplies, focusing on wheat, corn, rice, and soybeans, and provides a platform to coordinate policy action in times of market uncertainty. Last year, Amos initiated a series of public webinars on a number of topics, including the war in Ukraine, export restrictions, fertilizers, and commodity market speculation. Uh, today's seminar is the first in a new series of public webinars co-hosted by Amos and uh, IFRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute. And this one, that uh, this seminar series will examine, examine the impacts of global policies and events on agricultural markets. To, uh, the topic of today's seminar is biofuels. Biofuels got a lot of attention, as many of you remember, back in 2007-8 and 2010-11, a period that saw the rapid growth in biofuel production, particularly U.S. ethanol production, and where there was a heated debate over the degree to which biofuel mandates and their impact on demand for grain and oil seeds contributed to price levels uh, and price volatility. Over the, in the intervening years, that debate died down. Prices fell, global supplies recovered. But in the meantime, biofuel demand has continued to grow for ethanol, biodiesel, and new bio-based products like sustainable aviation fuel. But with the war in Ukraine and tight global stocks, the food versus fuel debate has reemerged. And we have a very good panel today to discuss these factors. The first panel is uh, going to be composed of uh, Leanne Jackson, who's the head of the Agri-Food Trade and Markets Division at OECD. Many of you remember or know uh, Leanne back when the days when she was with the Ag Secretariat at the World Trade Organization. She's going to talk about the OECD baseline for biofuels. Leanne will be followed by Sigrid Falk who's co-editor of Oil World. Uh, I think any of you who deal in vegetable oil markets and who study vegetable oil markets, no Oil World and no Siegfried. The Oil World has been around for 75 years and is really kind of the primary source for those who are doing analysis in, in, um, in that sector. And then lastly, uh, Pat Westhoff, who's director of the Food and Agricultural Policy Research Institute at the University of Minnesota. Missouri will talk about ethanol and um, uh, ethanol demand in the in the U.S. and some of the factors affecting that. They're going to be followed by a discussion panel uh, moderated by Seth Meyer, who's the USDA's chief economist and also is the uh, currently the Amos chair. Um, and that's going to be composed of uh, Justina Robel from the EU and Marcelo Guimaraes from from Brazil. That will be all be followed by a Q&A. And while I got you here about the Q&A, we really would like to hear from you. To participate in the Q&A session, um, please submit your uh, questions on ifbre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or using the hashtag, uh, hashtag AskIfbre on Twitter. And uh, again, I'm going to turn right uh, to the opening one with Leanne. And Le Leanne, I'll let you start off. 
Great, thanks very much, Joe. I'm just gonna share my screen, which is gonna take a minute, I think. I think that that it should be visible now, I hope. Yes. Coming. Okay, now it's coming. It's up, yep. Great, okay. So uh, first of all, thanks very much to the organizers for this invitation. Um, it's always great to be among all these knowledgeable colleagues and taking away learnings even as I participate as a speaker. So I think my role today is really to um, sort of set the baseline of the discussions. And for that, I'll highlight some of the baseline um, information that comes from a publication that OECD produces jointly with FAO every year. It's called the Agricultural Outlook. And this year, um, the it what it does is it, it uh, projects 10 years ahead what we think will be uh, the world for agricultural commodity markets, and it covers a, a wide range of, of commodities, including cereals, oil seeds, sugar, meat, dairy, and of course biofuels, um, among others. Um, and what we do with that um, publication, which we've been producing for about 19 years, is to try to flesh out what some, are, some of the fundamentals are that are helping to explain what's going on in commodity markets and what we can see in the future in terms of how um, fundamentals of both demand and supply are going to be driving commodity markets 10 years down the road. So just to kind of give... Um, a preview of the few slides that I'll show. First, I'll focus a bit on countries and what we see about um, in terms of countries' contributions to changes in these markets. Um, a quick slide on feedstocks and, and sort of um, new types of feedstocks and what we assume in our projections in terms of moving off of, of kind of classic feedstocks for biofuels, and then circled to the end to look specifically at commodities and how commodities are used, um, um, both in terms of how they are used as inputs for biofuels, but then also across a range of other uses. Um, so I'm gonna to try to advance my slides and let's see. My system is still waking up. There we go. Okay, so I'll, I'll have two slides that are looking at the development of world consumption of bio, biofuels. The first one will focus on ethanol and the second one will um, look at biodiesel. Um, and here, what you can see is um, starting from 2003 to 2021, that's based on data. And then the following, the right-hand side of that graph shows what our OECD FAO projections are for the next decade. And each of the, these bars represents the distribution of um, consumption across different countries. And what you can see really in the sort of early years, again, we're, we know that 2007, 2008 were particularly meaningful period for biofuels and the debates around biofuels. You can see that um, in that period of time, there was quite a rapid acceleration of, of consumption of, of ethanol and um, the US, which is the blue part of those of those bars um, was a significant part of that um, a, a part of that increase, and this was partly due to U.S. policies that were implemented in the time, including the renewable fuel standard. And so, when we project forward, you can actually see that from the U.S. side, um, the U.S. consumption of ethanol 
we're projecting is um, expected to remain stable, while it's still a still a reasonable share of the total global consumption of ethanol. Um, when you look at the sort of the axes of this graph, we're talking about um, projections of a, around 140 billion liters of consumed ethanol globally in 10 years time, so in 2031. And that's not a massive increase um, from where we are now. Um, if you can see that little thin black line, that's showing our, where we are currently. Um, and what we, what we see is that increase um, is largely due to Asian expansion into this area. And this is partly due to policies. So really the story of my presentation is how much policies are driving markets in biofuels and, um, uh, what we do in the outlook is um, we can't really forecast changes in policies. So we take an assumption of where the policies are now and we forecast out 10 years based on, based on what those existing policies are. So then if I quickly turn to biodiesel, it's sort of um, a similar graph, right? So we've got um, the, the time span between 2003 to 2031 with the 10 years on the right-hand side of that graph showing what our projections are. And here you can see, it's sort of a similar story, it's slightly different scale. So we're talking about an increase, um, a projected increase in consumption of biodiesel of about 55 billion liters in 2031. Um, and this is still slightly increasing um, while in the early years of biodiesel, the EU was really a um, predominant share of the world consumption of biodiesel. You can see that what we're projecting over time is for that to be um, slightly decreasing um, the share of EU within the global within the global consumption, and um, and this is. Uh, sort of compensated for by an increase in biodiesel consumption um, in Asia, um, specifically Indonesia. You can see that orange bar is Indonesia, and that's been increasing. So we see sort of globally, it's we're projecting a stable consumption, but as you dig into the different countries, you can see different a different bit of the story. Now, this is a little bit of a confusing graph. So um, let me walk you through it. So basically what we're looking at is, um, a picture of sh that shows that the most of the major consuming countries for most of the major consuming countries of biofuels and ethanol is on the left hand side and biodiesel is on the right hand side. The share of biofuel and overall liquid fuel consumption is increasing and you can see that because many of the circles are above the 45 degree line. Um, with a few where, where it's decreasing, but you can see, for example, for the United States in the ethanol market, um, it's sort of in the, it's kind of touching that 45 degree line. Um, the, um, the size of the bubble is the current share. So it's just giving a sort of sense of what the share across the different countries are in terms of biofuel demand across major regions. Um, and so you can see that there's the European Union and the United States, the kind of um, players that we're often talking about. You can, but you can also see the Asian countries are sort of popping in on the right-hand side. And you can see that for the Asian emerging markets, the story um, is largely, or um, a big part of the story is that we expect an increase in um, fossil fuel demand. So gasoline and diesel demand are expected to be increasing. And then the question is, 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 the, is the demand for ethanol and biodiesel, um, the share within um, liquid fuel increasing or decreasing? So that's a bit the, the story that you can see here.
Um, now, there, there have been some discussions about um, the transition away from traditional feedstocks for biofuels. Um, so I wanted to include this slide to sort of highlight what the OECD FAO projections assume. Um, there had been a lot of hope that there would be a transition to alternative feedstocks, especially that would be sort of linked to circular economies like using waste or other byproducts for biofuels. But the development that we have observed has been slower than expected. And so in our projections, we don't really assume an, an important change in the, in the use of advanced feedstocks. So here you can see on the, for each of these different um, countries, you can see two bars. One is our baseline period sort of, um, and that's the left-hand bar and the right-hand bar is the projection. Um, and then the colors show you um, the traditional feedstock versus the advanced feedstocks and the advanced is at the top. So again, um, if you take, for example, the United States, you can see that the use of traditional feedstocks is projected to increase, but that, that bar at the top we are assuming is, is sort of remaining constant. And this again has to do with our observation of of how that, um, how the market for these um, alternative feedstocks has been advancing or not. Now, um, the last two slides I have focus on the on the crop story, which I think is really where this seminar is headed. So here's one that's looking at the share of biofuel in total use um, across these different ag commodities and. Um, I guess what jumps out, so we're looking again, we look at the base period and we look at the projections. So for each of the commodities, there's two bars. Um, and you can see, for example, that the percent of biofuel in total use is, is kind of clustered around the commodities that are on the right-hand side of the graph. So maize, sugarcane, vegetable oil, and molasses um, have a higher proportion of the production that go um, towards biofuel. Um, and wheat, rice, and other coarse grains have a much smaller proportion, although they do also, um, they are also used in industrial uses, um, so that's what the gray bar is. Uh, and then this is my final slide. So um, this one is, I guess, sort of the punchline. Um, part of the story is biofuels, but of course there's other uses for major commodities. And so you can see, for example, um, the one that jumps out, of course, is the maize, which is on the left-hand side of the graph, um, which shows uh, what the, the use of for each of these commodities, we have the different colors coded for the different uses. Um, we have orange is food, blue is feed, green is biofuel, and gray is other uses. And so what really jumps out from this slide is um, you can see out of <clears throat> the, the, the volume of use of maize, really the, uh, the predominant <laughs> use is for animal feed. So, um, so it's, it really, um, it's probably four times as much um, as, as being used for, for biofuels. So um, probably we need to spend a little bit of attention thinking about um, these alternative uses if we're worrying, for example, about food security and, and what, the, what the implications of biofuel um, use and production is around ag commodity markets. Um, you... I think I'll stop there because I heard the little bell. Um, just to wrap up to say, 
Uh, here are our contact information. Um, if you have more um, questions about other commodities besides biofuels, it's um, all there at this at this website. Um, in terms of our baseline, maybe just to stress once more that we really see that policies are driving a lot of what's going on in biofuel markets, and it's very difficult to predict how those are going to evolve over time. Um, they're a big part of the uncertainty when we look at our baseline projections, um, and I'm looking forward to the discussions to dig into some of those policies a little more. Thank you. Leanne, thanks so much. This is great. Really sets the stage nicely for uh, what follows. And I'm going to turn this now to Siegfried Falk from Oil World. Siegfried is going to talk about the vegetable oil market. And, um, and as, as Leanne uh, has shown in her thing, primarily that's going to be an involvement with biodiesel and, and those sorts of uh, biofuels. So Siegfried, over to you. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Joe, for the introduction. I hope my slides are on already. Otherwise, please let me know. So um, uh, thank you to the They're organizers um, for, for having me here. I think it's a, it's a very appropriate topic you're bringing up here. Um, we're having a huge dilemma here. Um, uh, a lot of biodiesel producing countries are pursuing their production targets for various reasons. and. Uh, partly irrespective of how this fits into the um, uh, global supply and demand balance. And um, hopefully we can shed some light on, on uh, this issue and, and on the question questions um, that come up with this. Let's have a look at, at prices on the first slide uh, to get some orientation where we are at right now. So we clearly see prices of crude palm oil as well as of other vegetable oils have declined sharply from the peaks we had reached last year. And at the same time, when we look at gas oil or at diesel prices, if you want, so we have seen a sharp increase in the course of last year, um, obviously sparked by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So the net effect has been a significant improvement of the price competitiveness of crude palm oil and to a smaller extent also of other vegetable oils on the energy market. So uh, this is something to keep in mind here because apart from um, all the mandates we were gonna discuss, this is um, uh, sort of creating a price floor for vegetable oils since it is um, since we're at a level here of competitiveness that absorbs additional volumes of vegetable oils for discretionary blending. So uh, let's have a quick look at the key developments of biodiesel production in key countries. We see a rather flat development here in the European Union. We also see a sideways trend in, in Argentina producers there are largely depending on um, biodiesel import demand from Europe. And, and this was recently lacking. It was not competitive. Um, there is a lot of supply of other feedstock and of other biodiesel material currently in Europe. But what is important to note here is what happens in the other three key players in Brazil, the US and Indonesia. 
Steep increases is what we expect here in their biodiesel production this year. And HVO is, is included when I say biodiesel. So on the left-hand side in the graph, um, this is uh, included in our estimates of total consumption growth of 17 oils and fats in the major countries. In the USA, Indonesia, and Brazil, we're expecting massive increases of total oils and fats consumption in the season 22-23, largely driven by these developments here in biodiesel. But what is important to note here in the current season is that not only biofuels are demand drivers, but also the food sector. We see this here at the example of India and China, where oils and fats consumption is largely based on, on the food sector. Massive increases in the vicinity of 1, 1 1.5 million tons is what we are currently assuming. So this is partly a, um, a response to what happened last season. We're having pent up demand in these countries because COVID-19 restrictions are largely removed and prices are comparatively lower than last season. So how does this fit into the balance? Uh, this is basically the world oils and fats market in a nutshell. Uh, let, let's keep this simple. I'm not going to discuss uh, crop prospects and rainfall in South America right now. Um, let's just state that we are looking at a large supplies of oil seeds in the current season, which is a fortunate and a good sign for consumers. Um, and primarily larger crops of, of rapeseed have been harvested in, in a number of countries. And according to the latest oilwood estimates, this is expected to lift the annual increase of world production to a five-year high in October, September 22-23. So, but as I just said, this is going to be matched by massive increases on the demand side, both for food food and for fuel. So taken together, the world increase in demand we're currently expecting is in the vicinity of 10 million tons. So conclusion here is um, it, it is fairly balanced. Such a demand increase can be managed this season, but going forward, we have strong doubts whether we can repeat such increases in the years ahead. And, and this could be, become a real problem for the market um, uh, when we have in mind what, what ambitious projects regarding biofuels um, uh, uh, are, are to be expected. So let's have a quick look at the USA. Uh, obviously, one of the key drivers here is the HVO boom that has uh, started uh, uh, about two years ago, and which is now increasingly uh, exceeding what the US market is producing. So we are currently estimating that the US will uh, register net imports of roughly 5 million tons of oils and fats. So the USA is, is, is lar uh, working like a, like a magnet, basically, and attracting oils and fats, as well as feedstock and biodiesel from, from the world market. And uh, this is uh, creating some, some domino effects, so to say. 
um, all these material coming to the US, US is, is now uh, 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 resulting in, in shortages elsewhere, basically. Brazil is, has adopted quite a smart approach to, to, its, to the management of its biodiesel policy. Uh, at the end of 2021, they lowered the admixture mandate instead of raising it further as, as was planned initially and kept it at 10% throughout last year. So this, this may be one of the things we want to discuss, whether this is a kind of flexibility that more countries should adopt uh, going forward to uh, at least cushion uh, periods of shortages in the market, shortages on the supply side. Now, the big question is going forward, um, will the Brazilian government implement 14 or 15% admixture from April onward or not? Um, right now, we are assuming a partial fulfillment of this target, and, and this would translate into an increase of Brazilian biodiesel production of roughly 1.2 million tons. And here on the right side, we, we clearly see how this has boosted Brazilian soil consumption over the years, and at the same time resulted in a declining trend of Brazilian soil exports. Indonesia, clearly the, the heavyweight on the vegetable oil market and nowadays also in the biodiesel market. Indonesia kept the admixture mandate at 30% during the last two years and now uh, intends to raise it to 35% uh, from February onward. Now, our expectation is that if this is by and large fulfilled, the country's export supplies will diminish further. So uh, the experience of last year is, um, has kind of taught the world market the hard way. Uh, I should say that the Indonesian government is quite determined when it, when it comes to uh, pushing through its, its biodiesel policy. When prices skyrocketed and cooking oil supplies tightened, uh, at the start of last year, they did not touch their biodiesel mandates, but instead they banned exports and implemented other export restrictions. So basically, consumers in the rest of the world had to pay the bill and were affected by a shortage of, of palm oil. So having these ambitious plans of, um, of, of the Malaysian biodiesel program in mind, um, which we believe uh, could translate into an increase of Indonesian biodiesel output in the vicinity of 1.2 million tons this year. Um, it is quite a concern that the supply side is not uh, keeping, keeping up with this and, and will not support such ambitious demand increases. Uh, simply because the, on the one hand, the mature area of palm oil worldwide is growing at a much slower pace in recent years and also going forward. And uh, in addition, production is curbed by the 
poor development of yields in the key producing countries in Southeast Asia. So there's a massive structural problem here in these countries. The one is the shortage of labor, mainly affecting the Malaysian industry. And the, the other is the deteriorating age structure of the oil pylons. So in the EU27, the, the feedstock mix is changing considerably. We see a massive increase in used cooking oil and tallow usage. More and more countries are phasing out palm oil use. And increasingly also soybean oil, which is not shown here, uh, is also on a declining trend as, uh, in, in coming years. So palm oil and soya will have to be replaced uh, with so-called waste oils. And at the moment, they are also increasingly uh, replaced with um, rapeseed oil as biodiesel feedstock. And there's also a massive increase of biodiesel exports to Europe, mainly from China. I leave the question open whether this is all based on used cooking oil or whether this partly includes palm oil. So for the time being, there is plenty of raw material here in Europe. But what I think is interesting is that we hear already today concern from the mineral oil industry in Europe that once the sustainable aviation fuel industries in, in Asia are growing and once the HVO capacities there are expanding, they are afraid that Asia will no longer be able to, to export use cooking oil to Europe and instead use it themselves. So this would aggravate the problem, the feedstock problem for the European biodiesel industry massively. So to sum this up, we are looking at a accelerating growth of production. Last year, 3 million tons increase of biodiesel production. This year, we are expecting between 4 and 5 million tons increase, more or less depending on how strict the mandates are implemented or not. The biodiesel feedstock. Well, yes, there, there are efforts to, to replace food oils with used cooking oil and tallow, but tallow supplies are very limited. So this is a limiting factor already and used cooking oil supplies are also limited and not growing endlessly. So the dependence on palm oil, soya oil and rapeseed oil for the time being as, as the major feedstocks will be high. So this is now my last slide to sum things up. Um, we have split up here our estimates of world consumption of oils and fats into biofuel and food and other and see a flattening curve of in the food and other segment and a growing share of biofuels. And uh, if we calculate this on a per capita basis, we uh, come to almost uh, six kilogram used for biofuel in the current season, whereas uh, the food consumption decreased per capita during the last two years. So uh, let's keep in mind, this means less food and, and um, less uh, food supplies for millions of people, uh, primarily in poorer countries. And, and let, let me also state that uh, the major job of oil world is not uh, to say, a government policy is good or bad, 
But our responsibility is to inform our readers whether these policies have the potential to disrupt the global balance to an extent that will affect prices. So I'm sure there are many more questions that need to be discussed, but uh, for now, I thank you all for listening. Siegfried, thanks so much. This is great. Um, and, it, and it shows, I, I think, well, we'll, we'll be able to get, a, uh, get into this in the discussion that follows. Uh, uh, oftentimes, if we're looking at, at baselines, baselines by nature assume the current policy environment. What we've seen is a, a constantly changing policy environment where biodiesel mandates have been ramped up and other sorts of things. I'm going to now turn to Pat Westhoff. Um, Pat, if you want to talk about uh, ethanol and some of the things going on there. Thanks. Yeah, thanks again for the opportunity today. Hopefully you'll be able to see my screen here in just a minute if you can already. Is that popping up for you all now? It, it's up, but it's not in presentation mode yet. How about now? Not yet. Hold on. Hmm. Let's try a different approach here. Hang on just a second. Let's try that one instead. Yep. There we Scare go. Now, okay, now. very good. So I'm going to first of all blame my co-conspirators here, Jay Westons and Wyatt Thompson. Uh, you are actually catching us in the middle of our baseline week. So FAPRI has been doing baseline projections for the last mumble, mumble, mumble since the 1980s. Um, and uh, this is a week we're trying to make sense of the world yet again. One of our big questions going on in the room just two doors down from me right now is how much growth should we have in renewable diesel in front of us? And what's that going to mean for world OLC markets? But today I'm going to focus primarily on ethanol for you all. So if we go to the next slide here in just a second or two, I'm hoping. Okay, surely it's going to pop up for you all. I think it's popped up on my screen at least now. We'll see if it gets to yours here shortly, I hope. Yeah, so ethanol yet. production is dominated by just a few major players, as you all know, and as, as uh, Leanne pointed out to you already. Um, you know, the United States accounts for roughly 48% of total world ethanol production using USDA figures. Brazil about 26%. Uh, China and EU then about another 14% between those two. The rest of the world about 12%. Uh, Pat, it's not, Pat, unfortunately, it's not up yet. So um, not popping up. Hmm. Okay. There we go. How about now? Yep. So. Right, know what the problem was, but I guess we're good now. Okay, so there's the stuff I just talked about there, mix of feedstocks, of course, in China and the EU, United States primarily corn, Brazil primarily uh, sugarcane. So let's say I want to tell the story one way or the other. Suppose I want to focus on just how important ethanol is in global markets for agricultural products. So I'd point out, first of all, that USDA says that 38% of the 2022 US corn crops can be used to make ethanol. So that sounds like a big number, right? Plus, you need to consider the use of sugarcane in Brazil, various feedstocks in other countries. That obviously keeps prices higher than they would be otherwise. And plus, the policy makes ethanol demand inelastic, as it probably does. That means ethanol consumption of corn, of sugarcane, et cetera, isn't terribly price responsive given the way current policies work. That may actually make price swings more, uh, more you know, violent in one direction than the other when we have a change in supply or something else. Uh, it's the world market, as we saw in 2022. So that's the part of the story if you're trying to say this is a big deal. If you're trying to say it's maybe not quite as important, you could, you could correctly point out that if you correct for co-products compared to global use, uh, U.S. corn for, for uh, use of corn to make ethanol is about 8% of global corn use and about 3% of global grain use. 
So yes, it's important, but it's you know not nearly as important as it might appear just focusing only on the US market for corn alone. And for comparison's sake, uh, the increase in China's feed use of corn since 2000 is about 10% of global corn use. So in other words, just the increase in China alone for, for feeding livestock is greater than total consumption of corn uh, for ethanol in this country. Uh, US ethanol use hasn't changed much over the last 10 years. And as Leanne's projections agree with our own, we probably don't expect to see much change over the next 10 years either. So arguably, it's hard to blame ethanol too much for recent price developments. You know, it's been other stuff causing what we've seen happening over the last couple of years. So the renewable fuel standard is very, very important. So in recent years, US biofuels has been roughly matching the overall renewable fuel standard. So on the chart here, I've got on the bottom is going to be a biomass-based diesel, so renewable diesel, biodiesel. Blue is going to be other advanced fuels, which can include uh, biodiesel. And the yellow is going to be everything else that's primarily ethanol. And then the red line at the top is the, uh, the applied level of the renewable fuel standard. Renewable fuel standards set by statute to some extent, but the, European, the Environmental Protection Agency has to write rules every year about how it's going to be implemented. There are small refineries uh, waivers that reduce the effect of RFS. Uh, there's been court cases that affect how this plays out as well. But kind of the big point I'm trying to make here is if you look at the overall use of biofuels as recorded in, in the RINs, the uh, certificates that show compliance with the, with the RFS, those pretty much match with the overall mandates have been. Mind you, those mandates have been adjusted sometimes even after the fact. Uh, but the bottom line is we, we end up meeting pretty much the mandated amount, no more, no less, which is a little bit of change from year to year because the RFS does allow some interannual adjustments. Uh, what probably matters more is going to be the mix of biofuels in a given year, depending on market circumstances and other factors. So one piece of evidence that this has actually been pretty binding, pretty important in recent years has been the value of these RINs, the renewable identification numbers that are used to show compliance with the RFS. So corn ethanol generates what are called D6 RINs and other categories of RINs for other types of biofuels, such as biodiesel and other advanced fuels. D6 RIN uh, you know, you know, shouldn't have a value if the, if the mandate's not binding. You know, it should only have a value if people are having to use more biofuels than what they otherwise would were it now for the mandates being in place. Those RINs have had a positive value every year since 2015. In fact, a very high value the last two years. And if you just look at a snapshot last week, the D6 RIN value is reported to be $1.64 per gallon uh, by OPIS, uh, the Oil, oil um, Petroleum Information System. And comparison sake, the ethanol price last week was $2.19 a gallon. So these are a very big deal and have uh, obviously had an impact on what people are doing out there in the real world. So suppose you wanted to look at a world where the RFS is maybe less of a factor. You know, what could cause that to be the case? Well, obviously, if you lower the applied RFS, that means it's going to be less binding. So it's not just the stated level in law, but also how you account for things like those small refinery waivers that have been so important in determining the applied RFS in recent years. If you have lower feedstock prices that make ethanol production you know, more, uh, more profitable, you'd have more production at a lower price. That would all else equal make uh, uh, make the RFS less binding as well. Certain points can actually have production use above the mandated amounts. If you had overall uh, higher fuel use, you know, that would increase the quantity used. But it's important to note that every year's requirement of the, the RFS is actually stated as a share of total fuel use. You know, they start maybe from quantity estimate, but they want, then they back that into what the implied share of use is going to be. So if use goes up or down a given year unexpectedly after the RFS is set, uh, you know, then the, you know, that, uh, the effective RFS is adjusted accordingly. 
be at a greater ease of use of bi biofuels. Uh, right now, there's still some things that make it tougher to use higher level blends in the US above 10%. So if some of those restrictions, some of those rules were, were uh, modified to make it easier to use 15% blends or 85% blends it is today, you know, that might actually increase the overall amount of ethanol use as well. Uh, other policies can boost biofuel use. California's a low carbon fuel standard, for example, that has been a major factor in encouraging the, the growth of the renewable diesel industry uh, because of the way that that, uh, that program works. It has the effect of, of heavily subsidizing uh, the use of renewable diesel in the diesel fuel supply in California. And of course, there's also this ambiguous effect from higher gasoline prices. On the one hand, if you have a higher gasoline price, and you know, it reduces the price of biofuels compared to gasoline, that might encourage a higher proportional blending of biofuels in the overall fuel mix. But on the other hand, it could reduce overall fuel use. So certainly ethanol use and standard 10% blends could actually fall. So this all suggests the importance of setting the RFS and other biofuel policies. Uh, the EPA has significant but not infinite discretion setting the RFS. Uh, it has, has a wide possible mix of goals, and those goals can change from one administration to the next, even from one year to the next. On the one hand, they may have lots of factors trying to want them to push increased use, so they would set the RFS higher. They want to reward capacity. So if there's lots of plans in place now to build new renewable diesel plants, you know, they could choose to reward that capacity, those capacity plans by expanding the renewable uh, fuel standard accordingly. This, of course, creates a chicken and egg problem where, you know, do you, do you create the capacity uh, because of expectations of, of higher RFS or is the RFS itself adjusted based on, on those plans? Uh, the previous administration in particular tried really hard to satisfy both biofuel and crop producers and oil refiners and found that you probably can't do that. It's really tough to get all three parties uh, happy at the same time. Uh, it can reflect changes in fuel demand, as we said before. So if you're expecting a change in fuel demand in the future because of more efficient vehicles or because of more electric vehicles, for example, you might adjust the RFS accordingly. Uh, we've also got plans now to talk about you know, providing credits to, um, uh, to the use of renewable electricity to power those electric vehicles in the United States. You can maximize the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, or you could even choose to uh, pay attention to food and fuel consumer concerns. So those, those probably have not been as evidently uh, the top of the list as, as you know, some people might want them to be. Non-federal policies matter as well. As I said before, the LCFS in California is really, really important. And uh, that can happen. So if you have an expansion of renewable diesel, it can actually come at the expense of conventional biodiesel and ethanol. Uh, so since these are inter intertwined mandates, expanding one can actually reduce another. Joe said he liked this chart, so we may spend a couple of seconds on this one, just to, re to remind ourselves that in the United States, you know, since about 2011, the vast majority of, of gasoline sold in this country is a 10% blend of ethanol. So if you took a uh, look at the left-hand um, axis, it's going to give you the ethanol consumption in billions of gallons. The right-hand axis is doing the same for overall gasoline consumption with, a, with deliberately the scale of a factor of 10 larger than the right-hand left-hand scale. Just to make the point that you know, since about 2010, it's been almost exactly a 10% blend has dominated. There was this big drop in fuel use in 2020 in the United States and in the other countries as well because of because of COVID concerns, we have now recovered all the way back to the pre-COVID levels of consumption of gasoline in this country. And one of our big question marks going forward is how will the expansion of electric vehicles and, and other more efficient vehicles reduce or affect overall fuel supply in the future? Our projections from, from uh, uh, November suggested a very slight increase 
in the amount of, of higher level blends, but still we're talking about overall ethanol use pretty much moving with gasoline use in the years ahead. We don't have big difference between us and USDA in our projections. You know, we're both saying roughly flat overall ethanol use in this country. And I'll wrap up here pretty quickly. Uh, total feed use in this country is dominated by corn and blue. The ethanol core products are in green, so they're a very large, in fact, almost as large as soybean meal in any given year. Our projected growth in the front of us there. Uh, I'll skip that one, and we'll just say on prices-wise, you know, we like OECD. We're, we're projecting lower prices for uh, the crops harvested in 2023 and beyond uh, than we saw uh, for last year's crop. Futures market and USDA have you know very similar projections of lower prices uh, in the year ahead uh, than we saw in the recent past. Overall land use in this country on the right-hand chart is draw attention to you know, corn and yellow, soybeans and red. Blue is 11 other major crops to keep track of and, um, and hay. And then green is a, a program that reduces acreage by 10-year uh, contracts, a conservation reserve program. Overall land use in this country, uh, tribute agriculture has actually been declining a little bit uh, over the last uh, couple of decades, relatively flat projected in front of us. Note that, ethyl, that corn and soybeans an increasing share of the total. So thanks a lot for the opportunity. Uh, again, that's how to contact me and uh, I look forward to the discussion. Great, Pat, thanks so much. Uh, the next portion, I'm gonna bring up Seth Meyer uh, in just a second to moderate the, the uh, get, get some reaction from our discussants. We already have questions coming in on the, um, in the chat and others uh, with people submitting questions. I just wanna remind everyone, you can do that, whatever platform you're currently under, but you can uh, submit your questions on ifree.org. Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or using the hashtag, hashtag AskIfPre on Twitter. Seth, take it over. Yeah, so we got lots of good questions coming in, Joe, and, and this is usually the part of the program here when we bring in a couple more folks. And I think, you know, a, a couple guests where, you know, the U.S. has a long history of biofuel production. We'll bring in a couple of more guests to talk about the long history of biofuel production and where we're heading in these uh, individual countries or regions. So the first person I think we'll bring in is Justina Robel, who's the team leader at DG Agri uh, at the European Commission. And she's also the EU representative at Amos. And, and Justina, um, obviously a lot going on in the ag and energy section sector in the EU. So can you give us a, a reflection of what you've heard and then kind of contextualize that in the European Union? Uh, good morning, good afternoon, uh, colleagues. Thank you very much for having me today. Uh, happy uh, to contribute with few elements from the EU side and comment a little bit on the different uh, elements uh, presented by OECD and oil world colleagues, since they, they are, of course, very much expert in this field. And from my side as a, a market officers on the follow-up of the grains and oil market, of course, the biofuel developments are very important. And the EU policy in this respect is already uh, having a, uh, a decades uh, behind us since we started with this uh, policy support several years ago, and we continuing to develop this policy and adapt it according to the, to the new challenges, more ambitious uh, objectives uh, as regards addressing the climate change, as well as also uh, finding the solutions when there is a need for flexibility in this policy, when we see that 
the, this could lead some maybe some, to some conflictual objectives as regards to, uh, guaranteeing the food security and addressing maybe food inflation aspects, which we have faced recently. Uh, this last year was very challenging in this respect because the Europe was hit from one side uh, from the surging energy prices. Therefore, of course, the biofuels uh, are uh, increasingly attractive, but at the same time, uh, of food inflation and uh, uh, concerns overall global food security. So exactly, uh, biofuel, you, you biofuel, fuels policy needed to adapt to that uh, new challenges and we have tried to uh, give a lot of flexibility in this respect to our member states because we have some objectives at the EU level but also targets at the member states level and they have this flexibility to address uh, maybe some uh, ongoing challenges in this respect uh, reducing the use of the conventional biofuels as we call it those ones that are based on the uh, on the food uh, and, and feedstock uh, and those one of course needed to be a little bit reduced to keep uh, the availabilities for uh, uh, to prioritize uh, food and feed consumption as has been uh, presented uh, um, the, the share of the biofuels in, in consuming europe uh, uh, compared to at the, at the global level is lim relatively limited as we uh, look at the ethan uh, ethanol market a little bit more important when we look on the biodiesel market and uh, of course uh, what's going on in you in the eu of course has an impact on the on the global price levels therefore we understand the importance also of our policy in this respect as regards the the global prices uh, so what I wanted also to uh, comment on the um, outlook for the next year, as, uh, as presented by OECD, uh, I see that we have a very similar uh, views in this respect, because also from the, our side, we see that uh, the biofuel uh, consumption is stabilizing and then declining, given that we have uh, increasing objectives as regards the zero emission cars so the overall uh, fuel demand will uh, is expected to drop and in accordance the biofuel one because we have actually the, uh, currently in place a cap on the uh, uh, convention biofuels uh, use so actually we we cannot expect further expansion of the of these types of biofuels in the overall mix given this uh, applicable cap to actually address those challenges, as I mentioned, uh, food security, but also very important one as regards the sustainability of a biofuels policy. So from that angle, uh, the EU is already since several years having this cap on the conventional biofuels, and we strongly support the development of the advanced biofuels from waste and residues. So, um, we also see uh, in terms of the overall biofuels demand that the share of the advanced biofuels will significantly increase both as regards the bioethanol market as well as regards the biodiesel market. Of course, as um, uh, Oil World has highlighted, uh, uh, Siegfried has uh, rightly pointed out that there is, of course, a limitation as regards the availability of this advanced uh, biodiesel sources, since uh, there is not much uh, uh, possibility to further expand the used cooking oil, used, uh, cooking oil or a tallow uh, product. So, of course, uh, 
that would be a limiting factor in the in the next years. But uh, this is the uh, still the types of biofuels that uh, the EU is uh, supporting very strongly. So this is the way, this is the uh, new uh, biofuels mix that we see will be uh, the 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 one uh, promoted in the next uh, years in the EU. So. Uh, maybe I will stop there with those few highlights and uh, on the major objective of the European uh, renewable energy policy and what we expect in the coming uh, years in this respect. And of course, our focus on the food security uh, given the recent context. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Justina. And next, let's bring in Marcelo Guimarez. Um, Marcelo, I, I had a, and, and Marcelo is the general coordinator of studies and information at the Ministry of Agriculture, Livestock, and Food Supply in Brazil. And he also happens to be the Brazil rep to Amos. And Marcelo, uh, Brazil has a long history of sugarcane ethanol production, but I had a chance to visit Brazil this summer and went to Mato Grosso and just the amazing uh, corn and soybean production in the country. So when you listen to the presentations and reflect on that, uh, give us your thoughts as to your reflection on what you heard and, and what you expect in Brazil going forward. Hello, uh, uh, I'd like to start by uh, saying hello to everybody. Uh, good morning and good afternoon. And thanking the organizers for having me at this uh, very interesting panel. Well, uh, all the, the, the things I've heard here uh, were very, very interesting. And I, I was trying exactly to make such a comparison and a reflect, reflection on this uh, new situation uh, uh, related to Brazil characteristics. Uh, as, as you said, uh, uh, Pat, Brazil has a long time relationship with biofuels. But uh, this relationship has never jeopardized either food production or not food uh, exports. And uh, our, our main uh, biofuel is ethanol made of uh, maize, but we have uh, uh, showing a, a huge increase in terms of uh, maize-based ethanol uh, production and consumption over the, the last uh, five to 10 years. And the same applies to uh, biodiesel. And uh, well, and as I said, uh, it, it has not uh, 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 jeopardized uh, this uh, food and uh, production and exports to the rest of, of the world. So the increasing of production uh, in the Midwest, and you said Mato Grosso, our man uh, producing state now for uh, grains, uh, shows it that uh, it has been able to develop uh, uh, more and more plants, uh, refineries for uh, even by uh, either biodiesel or uh, 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 ethanol made of uh, 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 corn. And uh, I think that uh, this has been uh, a result of uh, investments made by the sector entrepreneurs 
in this uh, in these plants over the last years, and so it reflects now this increase in in uh, ethanol made of uh, corn, as well as uh, biodiesel production, uh, especially in terms of the uh, the most impressive one that was uh, uh, corn based uh, ethanol and its plants. Uh, we have now uh, operating in in Brazil uh, eighteen plants for. Uh, ethanol production, ethanol made of uh, uh, corn production. And 16 of these plants are now located in the Midwest region, 10 in Mato Grosso and uh, five in Goiás, and the remaining three in other uh, states. And so we, uh, as the production in the Mato Grosso has also been uh, increasing over the years, and uh, what's happening to, to maize is now an example of this because we are now only being uh, able to attend the domestic market, but increase exports as well. Uh, uh, for this year, it is uh, anticipated something around 45 million tons of uh, maize exports. And, but, uh, and additionally, we are also being able to supply the domestic market for uh, ethanol made of corn. So, uh, and basically it comes from, as you said, from Mato Grosso and other states in the Midwest region. So it's really impressive uh, the, the growth rate in the last years for these uh, two uh, biofuels. And uh, well, uh, our the, the, the main status uh, projections for the next 10 years are also uh, uh, amazing uh, because they are planning uh, to keep investing and some of the six of these plants are now under expansion, three in Mato Grosso and other three uh, in also in the Midwest and in some in the South. But uh, uh, this will uh, this will uh, make uh, production to more than double in terms of ethanol uh, made of from corn uh, in the in the next 10, ten years. So we have now just something around four billion uh, liter billion uh, liters of uh, ethanol production, and uh, the projection is set around nine to sixty nine point sixty five. Uh, for 2030. So, but uh, it also goes in parallel with uh, uh, our projections for uh, uh, corn and soybean uh, uh, production and exports. So, uh, in short, it will not uh, uh, represent any threat to food production or to uh, our exports to the rest of the world. Well, I'll stay here and I'm open for for the questions. Thank you for uh, the opportunity. Well, th thank you, Marcelo. Okay, Joe, I think this is the part where we bring everybody back together. We start with a little bit of Q&A and uh, start addressing, you know, synthesizing some of the public questions we're getting in and, and letting folks respond because we got it. We'll bring, so we'll bring everybody in. And I guess the first question that I, I think 
that I need to kick off with is given all we've heard, I'm going to go to Leanne and I'm going to say, you know, Joe started to allude to this a little bit when he talked about, hey, uh, assumptions of policy, et cetera. So when I kind of look at what the OECD has gotten out there with kind of flat usage, um, how, you know, describe to me what you think, hey, what are the drivers of that? What are the risks? Tell us about how you form your assumptions so we can have that discussion. Great, thanks very much, Seth. Um, yeah, it's true that especially in this part of our outlook, um, policies, play potentially really big part of the uncertainties that we see around our baseline. So um, maybe just I'll back up a second and say, um, when, we're, when we're developing our baseline, we actually draw on a baseline that the International Energy Association um, produces in their World Energy Outlook. And there they have, they have projections on the use of transport fuel, for example. So some of our results around the redu reduction in, or the anticipated um, reduction in transport fuel use in the EU and the US, that comes from um, external, external sources. But that really drives a lot of our results. We, we essentially in our, in the stew that goes together to, to create these projections, we take policies as they are because we can't really assume that the policies are going to change. So we take the existing policies and we push them forward 10 years. Um, like I said in my presentation, we don't assume that there will be any significant increase in the use of um, alternative um, feedstocks. So we don't assume that there'll be a lot of cellulosic um, uh, input or hydrogenized vegetable oil as, as feedstocks. We don't expect that to increase. Um, we also aren't assuming, for example, um, uh, a big uptake in sustainable aviation fuel. We know that's part of the discussion, um, but we know that you know it's dependent on technology. It's also very, um, affected by changes in policies. Um, so, so I would say in terms of like reading our projections with a grain of salt, all these questions around what policymakers um, can do in order to change the consumption and production of biofuels are really important. And this is, you know, blending mandates, um, how you define um, in sort of environmental sustainability and some regulations and those kinds of policy parameters are going to, you know, they'll lead to results that will deviate from our baseline because of course we know our baseline is not a forecast. <laughs> we're, we're taking, you know, we're taking where we are today and we're projecting it out 10 years and saying if there's no change, this is what we think the ag commodity markets will look like. Right. Great. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Leanne. And, and I think that, you know, Fabry has an, a long history of doing these type of forecasts as well, too. So, Pat, I, I'm going to, you know, Leanne laid out some risks and I'm, I'm, I'm going to then ask you, hey, measure these. Relatively speaking, where are these big risks? You know, we talk about fuel demand or and fuel part of fuel demand is growth in electric vehicles, if I synthesize some of the questions coming in. And then we talk about static policy and we know we haven't had even if we've had static policy over the last decade, kind of the interpretation of that policy has also not been static. 
So when you think about this going forward and you think about what your forecasts are demand for biofuels, where do you see the biggest risks? Are they mostly upside risks for consumption of feedstocks or are they mostly downside risks? I think you have both risks on both sides as we always do, bigger two-handed economists here, right? So on the one hand, you've got uh, uh, longer term risk because of electric vehicles and other things that may change, uh, the types of fuels we consume and how much. Uh, so if I was doing a projection out 10 or 20 or 30 years, I'd really be worried about how many electric vehicles we're going to have at that point. I'm doing a projection for 2023. On the other hand, you know that stock of vehicles is pretty well known. It's really going to be a matter of what's happening with feedstock prices, what's happening with particular aspects of policies in this country and elsewhere. Uh, on the policy risk, uh, I, Leanne hit a few of those already. Just note that in the US, it's not just federal policy in terms of renewable fuel standard related issues. It's also things like what does California do on, on setting uh, some of its LCFS policies going forward? That can make a big difference as well. Uh, in any given year, of course, if you have a short feedstock supply, uh, if we had something that disrupted vegetable oil supplies around the world, for example, you know that could have a lot to do with what happens in terms of use of existing capacity and might affect plans for future capacity as well. I'd say uh, in this country, our, probably our biggest question mark that we're dealing with, again, two doors down, is what's the, the future growth of renewable diesel? There are lots of plans out there to build new plants. Some of those plants are already well underway. Some are already operating for that matter. Uh, do they all get built? And if they do, where, where will the feedstocks come from? Do the policy support that? If they all got built and all operated, we'd be using a lot of vegetable oil for, for making uh, renewable diesel in 10 years time. We don't personally expect that those are gonna all get built and all operate at full capacity. So maybe we don't see the type of growth that, that could happen if that were the case. But I would say we're almost certain to see more growth than was um, projected by OECD in, uh, in their baseline, uh, the renewable diesel side. Thanks. Great, let me take over. Um, yeah, I think it's really striking. If you look at, you know, you look at the last five years, you see these really sharp trends on vegetable oil use for, for biodiesel. And yet, you know, both these baselines are look by, by, by contrast pretty flat. Um, so I guess we'll get to see, but Siegfried, I wanted to ask you, so I, I, you know, I think a lot of people in the US at least don't realize how important palm oil is in the rest of the world. And, and in particular, um, you know, what an enormous player Indonesia is in the palm oil market. So you, you, you look at, you know, vegetable, uh, Indonesia accounting, at least in trade, you know, almost a third of what's um, uh, traded in vegetable oil in the world. And so I, what I wanted to ask you though, is so what does this mean when we see these strong biodiesel mandates? Does that affect the pricing relationship between the various fats and oils? And I realize we've been mainly talking about vegetable oils, but there is a big edible animal fat market out there as well. Um, and if so, you know, how has, have you seen any sorts of things where that's actually shifted trade or, I mean, clearly you, you've talked about the very fact that, that Indonesia put on a, a ban earlier this year that had a very dramatic effect for the three weeks in particular the ban was on, but I'll let you respond. Okay, well, thank you, Joe. Um, let me just add quickly to, to the topic discussed before I, I uh, get that um, electric vehicles will play an increasingly important role going forward in, in many countries. In Europe, this process is ongoing and, and, and elsewhere. But we should not forget, uh, we, we, we tend to think of 
uh, biodiesel only used in, in, in transportation for cars. But what is somehow somewhat occurring in the background is that uh, um, uh, marine vessels are now increasingly uh, working towards raising the share of, of biodiesel biofuel towards 30%. So this is a massive uh, increase of biodiesel demand that is going on, and this is not going away. This is still growing. So we should not be too, too pessimistic um, uh, regarding the effect of uh, electric vehicles on, on biofuel demand. Um, and, and apart from that, uh, uh, don't forget uh, the major role uh, uh, sustainable aviation fuel will, will follow, uh, will play in, in the future. So this must not necessarily be based on, on mandates. Um, uh, our understanding is that in the next years, it will be in the interest of, of um, airlines to, to voluntarily blend in uh, biofuel. Um, uh, just in order to decarbonize uh, because it's an asset for them going forward. So um, your question on palm oil, uh, uh, of course, it, it plays a major role. It, is, it has become the by far uh, biggest uh, oil in the vegetable oil sector, um, uh, accounting for a massive share of, of uh, world consumption and even more so in trade, it has dominated uh, trade volumes. And, and that's why it has been so outstanding last year than we, when we saw a setback in world exports of vegetable oils by 5 million tons. This was primarily an effect of, of what happened in Indonesia that they uh, implemented export restrictions. And uh, th this was a quite a, a shock for many importing countries, which to a large extent uh, depended in the past and, and still today on, on palm oil to satisfy their, their cooking oil requirements because um, uh, for most years, palm oil has been offered at a discount towards others. It has been the cheapest and, and the most versatile oil. And, and, and uh, the other part of your question, do we see already um, effects on price relations um, of, of, um, of the biofuel programs? Uh, uh, we, we definitely see this. Um, we, we see this, for instance, in, in the tallow market, where the um, uh, price premium of tallow, edible tallow or inedible edible versus um, seed oils has, has exploded. Uh, uh, tallow prices are currently still near their, their record levels. So uh, this is what happens in a relatively small market with limited supplies, like in tallow, and, and to a small extent, uh, the same is happening to the bigger players in the market. And, and we have, of course, seen massive changes in, in the price relation between soya oil in the US, which developed a massive price premium over soya oil in Argentina. And, and this has been another factor which has changed uh, global trade flows. And, and there would be many more um, uh, examples for, for such changes. Yeah, no, thanks. So let, let me get to, I'm going to draw on some of the questions that we've already seen in the chat. Um, but, but this is a question for everyone, because I think this is kind of the crux of the issue that we're dealing with. And that is, as Siegfried has talked about how in some cases, you know, I think regardless of mandates, some of these oils are going to be used for industrial or non-food uses. Uh, the market's going to drive that. And, it, and in some cases, it's not just I, you know, I think back at 
in the early 2000s or so, when particularly in the US where ethanol was growing, a lot of the talk was on energy self-sufficiency and those sorts of things. But there's also a, a carbon world out there too, where a lot of these programs, a lot of these mandates are structured around greenhouse gas reductions. And I don't really wanna get into a deep dive on, on that, that's, that's a great topic for a future seminar, by the way. But I do want to talk about the policy aspects here, because there are periods where we have seen really tight supplies. And I think back with the growth in two, 2007, 8, 9, um, uh, on the ethanol side, certainly this last year, uh, in, in, in May in particular, when the, the ban went in, early May, when the ban went into effect in, in Indonesia. But Again, Indonesia is not the only uh, country that has, has mandates. The US 40 some odd percent of vegetable or soybean oil right now go into biodiesel um, uh, production in the US. And so the question is, should there be off ramps? And what does it, you know, for these policies at a time when these mandates are binding and yet we see very high food prices, should there be flexibility in those policies? And does your country have that flexibility? So I'm going to open that up to everyone. And uh, anyone who wants to jump in, maybe I'll start. Uh, um, uh, Justina, why don't I start with you? Because the EU actually has debated that very issue with this war in Ukraine and what that meant for, for, for uh, uh, biofuel uh, policies. No, th thank you, Joe, for giving me the floor. Uh, it's, uh, it's exactly a reflection that we had. And just to remind that the EU has not the, really a mandate on the conventional biofuels. There is a target uh, that the member state cannot actually exceed. So we are we are actually capping the, the uh, these types of uh, biofuels, given its impacts on the on the food security and indirect land use change. So also from the sustainability point of view, there is this cap on these types of biofuels. Uh, and exactly in this last month, given this serious situation as regards the, the supply uh, of, uh, of grains uh, and vegetable oils on the global market, we also uh, took some measures to further uh, uh, give a possibility to the member state because in our policy uh, those uh, EU uh, caps are also translated at the national level so then the member state were also reflecting on actually uh, 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 removing some uh, conventional biofuels from uh, the use because of the preference that they uh, decided to give to the food and feed consumption so there were several discussing, several also taking the concrete actions. So in overall, we see a drop in the conventional biofuels used in the EU because of those uh, decisions. And it was pretty obvious that uh, that was the that was contributing to stabilization of the in particular vegetable oil market because of a lot of rapeseed. Uh, it's used in the EU for the biofuels proposed, but this same kinds of rapeseed oil can be used for the food consumption and actually was uh, substituting at some uh, moments uh, the lack of availability of the sunflower oil from Ukraine. So that was really a very direct uh, reaction to the situation that we have seen uh, this last uh, month. Months. And we uh, definitely uh, managed to keep the price uh, for vegetable oil levels um, uh, uh, at the lower 
level because of those different uh, measures that has been put in place to reduce the use of, uh, of those products into, in the biofuels. Thank you. Super, thanks. Um, I, I, Marcelo, I'm gonna follow up with you. Siegfried, when he was given his, his uh, rundown on Brazil, he actually called the Brazilian policies logical, I believe, or that they, they you know, uh, actually had some consideration there. It looked like they had some consideration. Can you talk a little about this? Just in, in terms of, does, do, do higher prices get debated in Brazil when you see, uh, you know, this last year, when you saw such high vegetable oil prices? Um, and, and, you know, uh, certainly you've long had policies that's traded off between that have regulated the amount of, of ethanol going to uh, petrol supply and, and, and other things. And now see, uh, 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 you know, this big growth in, in both uh, corn-based or maize-based ethanol and also biodiesel. Uh, thanks, Joe, for having me at this forum. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I agree with him because um, Brazil uh, could show the necessary flexibility to adjust its policies, its biofuels policies to a new reality. So we had uh, a mandate of 13% of land and uh, it was uh, reduced to 10%. And uh, it, uh, it's expected to recover uh, uh, from 31st of March, uh, according to the original schedule uh, of our policy. So it would, uh, it would go straight for a 15% uh, uh, rate. However, uh, we are now uh, starting uh, in the new administration to have talks about this. And uh, it's still uh, too early to have uh, something uh, uh, ready for uh, to be presented uh, in, in, the, in public. But uh, uh, what is being considered that is the necessary adjustment to go uh, straight from 10% to 15%. So we are showing some flexibility in order to uh, make uh, the necessary adjustment uh, and allow the, the, the private sector to readapt its uh, planning for uh, this new uh, uh, reality. So I think this is a good example of what can be done when, when we face uh, times of uh, market uh, difficulties uh, like we uh, witnessed uh, uh, the last years. And uh, well, and another point that I, I think I should say that uh, Renova Bio, uh, the main uh, policy concern biofuels in Brazil uh, has uh, the necessary, I believe, uh, stimulus and rewards and also uh, punishments, uh, let's say so, in terms of market uh, to adjust for this kind of uh, situation. So uh, although we have a, a plan established and for uh, the next 10 years, uh, it's also 
uh, it also applies for uh, times of uh, difficulties and allow uh, both sides, the government and the private sector, uh, to sit together to discuss uh, the adjustments. So I think it's a, a positive point for times as we are uh, living now. Thank you. Well, thanks. Seth, do you have some questions? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first, I, I, I think, Pat, uh, I think we, I'll, I'll go to you and ask you a question a bit about off-ramps. I think we got to talk a little bit about U.S. policy on off-ramps, but I got some follow-ups for you. So let me, let, let's, let's just start there. So yeah, the U.S. policy does have a little flexibility on that. Uh, we can shift use from one year to the other in a modest extent, and we can also shift among biofuels to some extent. However, as I pointed out in my presentation, you know, the current value of RIN is very, very high. Suggesting the mandates right now are very binding. That means that uh, you know, overall, we're not seeing as much adjustment to uh, the current tight situation on the vegetable side in particular as we might have seen had not been for current policies. EPA does have a lot of flexibility in sending the RFS from year to year, so they could choose, of course, to adjust the RFS in light of market circumstances, uh, uh, but you know, doing that one year at a time. All right, I, I got several follow-ups here, but I think I wanna jump into the crop side a little bit here, Pat. We've seen over the last, I don't know, 18 months that the, like when you take, a, when you take the value of the bean and you have meal and oil, we've seen the oil part of the bean taking on a lot more value. Um, is this something that continues? And then I think as you, you talk about this, we've kind of talked about ethanol and biodiesel simultaneously here. But when one looks back in the reflection of kind of the tension between food and fuel in 2007 and where we are today and the expansion of biodiesel, should we be comparing these similarly? And, and what do you think the implications are for this biodiesel pull in the U.S.? Yeah, the, the, the expansion in renewable diesel and biodiesel has a different effect uh, qualitatively in some ways than the expansion of ethanol did. Uh, in terms of veg oil, of course, it's obviously pushing up veg oil prices, keeping higher than it would be, as you pointed out. The ratio of veg oil prices to, to meal prices is abnormally high now, and we project it will probably continue to be higher than it's been historically uh, in front of us if current policies remain in place. Uh, it does, of course, mean that meal is cheaper than it would otherwise be. That means that uh, you, know, you probably have uh, meal being a larger share of feed rations around the world than will always be, can even displace some other feeds as, as a result of that. In fact, one of these we're struggling with is at what, what, to what, at what point does meal become cheap enough that you start seeing people expand its use, not just as a protein feed, but even just as a caloric source in, in feed rations. If we were to have a really extreme case where oil prices are very high and meal prices are very, very low. So, so I think, um, you know, following up with Marcelo, you, you, Mar Marcelo, you gave, you answered first, I, I'd written down a lot of questions and you answered them as you went through this, as we went through your points, which is, you know, I think one of the first things you pointed out is over the next decade, you expect a doubling for maybe uh, 4 billion to 8 billion liters or for, for in the U.S., that's like a billion to 2 billion gallons. You already produced more than a billion gallons this last year. You think it's realistic to think that you will double that. I guess the next question is, is what do you what do you all see as being the use of DDGs internally within Brazil? And then I guess the next question is, is, you know, you got to feed those ethanol plants year round. Is this is this and but, but you've said you don't see this having a large effect on your exports. Is this something that you think both your first and your safrina crop can supply? Uh, how do you see 
year-round ethanol demand fitting into your production cycle of corn, uh, maize, in Brazil? You're muted. Sorry, sorry. Thanks for your uh, interesting uh, question, uh, Seth. Well, uh, this is this has been a side effect of the increase in the uh, maize production uh, from uh, for uh, ethanol uses in Mato Grosso. So, what we actually didn't expect that this to happen. So, uh, as we as it started and grew very fast in the first years. So we started observing uh, a new movement in terms of uh, uh, the DDGS uh, production and competitive use for uh, industries. So it's now becoming a closer for uh, uh, pig and, and poultry production and exports uh, uh, from the, the Midwest to the to the uh, south of Brazil. So uh, it, it's interesting because uh, it also decreased, reduced considerably the need for uh, government interventions in terms of the policies intended to support prices in the Midwest uh, region. So instead of supporting price, then to uh, sell uh, maize uh, uh, in the south or to exports carrying uh, a long way uh, to the ports. We are now uh, watching uh, exports of value-added uh, products as meat. So, and it's flourishing a, a new and more robust uh, industry there. And, um, well, uh, if I'm not mistaken, your second question was about uh, the realistic uh, possibility of increase in terms of uh, biofuel production. Well, and, that and that and 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 now you all have access to the Chinese market for corn. So, uh, can can you can can Brazil do all of this? Well, uh, uh, I don't know, <laughs> but I think that uh, the possibilities are given for our growers, our producers. And uh, so I think that the, there are uh, conditions and, and policies and market conditions for this to be, uh, for this opportunity to be taken by uh, farmers and, and the industry. So. Uh, in terms of production, and what we have seen is that the, the response from farmers in terms of the production has been very positive to market demand. So, and for us in the in the government, it has been great because uh, we haven't had uh, problems in <laughs> for uh, market interventions and use of uh, official budget to support any kind of uh, policy uh, uh, in general. And uh, it, it, despite uh, this, uh, let's see, uh, step aside of the government, the production and the market is becoming uh, more vivid and more uh, efficient. So uh, I think that uh, we can, uh, of course, offer now uh, the main, uh, uh, the other main uh, problems 
that uh, have been faced by farmers and, and the industry that is the infrastructure. So we can give more uh, attention to these uh, long-time problems as, we, as you probably saw in, in Mato Grosso. So some of the, the, the problems that we had there in terms of uh, 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 infrastructure, roads, railroads, roads and storage uh, uh, capacities uh, is now being a bit more uh, easy to be dealt with uh, due to the, to the unnecessary presence of the government in the market itself. So it has been a very good uh, side effect of this all this uh, 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 situation out the, the current uh, market situation and the, some of the positive aspect of the, the this moment when prices are, are high and very rewarding to uh, uh, farmers in the in the Midwest. Thank you. Okay, guys. Uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time. Um, so I, first, let me just thank everyone. I think this was excellent. We, we really needed another session, I think, because there's just so much here to talk about. Um, but uh, again, I want to thank everyone for being on the, the program. Um, sorry we didn't get to all of the questions. There's a, uh, some are, are in the chat, but I think we covered most. Uh, again, complex topic, particularly when you get into the different trade-offs between vegetable oils and fats and other things, the, the food fuel issues. Again, as I say, there's a whole greenhouse gas issues that we didn't quite touch on, which I think are fascinating. If nothing else, the, the differing standards that country, uh, countries have um, set up. And so hopefully we'll be able to pursue something like that in the future. In um, Stay tuned. We will have more IFPRI uh, Amos uh, seminars coming up. Um, over the over the course of the year, and we'll be uh, getting the, the news out on those. Uh, in the meantime, on February first, IFPRI will be uh, co-hosting another seminar with FAO and the CGIR Research Initiative on Foresight uh, on the future of food, uh, future of food and agriculture drivers and triggers for transformation, and that's going to be held at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern time here in the U.S. And so uh, again, I, Seth mentioned that we barely scratched the surface and I think that is right. But again, thanks so much everyone. Um, and uh, thanks everyone out there for, for joining us.